0: Hello, all, and welcome to the first of uh, hopefully many uh, of these uh, what we'll call podcasts for the Law Academy. And ultimately, what we're going to be doing is talking about a number of legal issues, maybe political issues, uh, and things that are generally more interesting that are and less about the kind of education when it comes to um, when it comes to law, the the kind of educational aspect of law. We we'll want to talk about things that affect everybody uh, in their day to day lives and also talk about things in a less formal manner, and really what an episode we've got because what we're going to talk about in this uh, first episode is uh, the conflict that may take place, or at least the crisis that exists currently uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and the way in which this is viewed through the lens of international law. So we are keeping it legal uh, in regard to talking about the the Russia-Ukraine crisis that is taking place currently uh, and the effect that international law may play, and also look at a number of issues within international law that are highlighted by this crisis. So as a general overview, we'll begin by talking about the conflict itself, the history of Russia and Ukraine in very very brief detail, we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that but mainly talking about where this conflict has arisen, the the, uh, the issue of sovereignty in relation to um, Ukraine and international law, and then talk about a number of aspects that relate to the international institutions that exist. So, talking about uh, Ukraine's membership of the European Union, as well as uh, Ukraine's membership of NATO, and how this has affected a number of aspects of this crisis. And then, once we've done that, we would talk about the actual legal ramifications of a potential invasion. Of course, we uh, spoiler alert. This will uh, not be a particularly difficult one to uh, answer. Uh, we'll be talking about how this is ultimately uh, would be an illegal um, uh, incursion by uh, by Russian forces. As well as talking about the uh, international aspects in terms of the international criminal aspects, talking about the act of aggression and, and whether or not um, this could be a crime that is prosecutable uh, at the International Criminal Court, uh, before finally talking about the issue of um, spheres of influence within international law and how this could have an implication or at least have a detrimental effect on the potential state sovereignty of uh, individual um, actors within international law. So. For those who've been living under a rock, <laughs> the, in recent months, uh, and specifically in recent weeks, specifically uh, and especially over the month of January, we've seen tensions arising in the, uh, along the Russia-Ukrainian border. In fact, um, we have up to 120,000 um, uh, Russian troops that are uh, positioned around the border, um, almost encircling Ukraine entirely, and this has raised a lot of eyebrows. Now, Russia uh, began by making claims about this being simply a training exercise, and there are also um, issues relating to, uh, ultimately, the, the whether or not we might see a potential invasion of Ukraine. Now, um this has been signified by the heightened tensions and the um, growing international concern that exists a lot in this region of the world. We've seen concern from the United Kingdom, from the head of states that, uh, here, it, but namely the Prime Minister we've seen concerns from members of the european union specifically the member states of the european union germany france spain etc and then we've also seen um, concern from the united states uh, represented also by um, nato the north american atlantic uh, sorry the north atlantic um, treaty organization and ultimately the argument that is presented here by russia is that they are opposed to NATO's eastward expansion into former Soviet states. Now, they see this as an eastward. However, it should be noted that any member of NATO has joined NATO voluntarily. So we need to bear that in mind when we are talking about the, um, the potential arguments that are, are, that are presented by Russia. And ultimately, the NATO was established as a way to protect um, Western states against uh, an overbearing Soviet Union before uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and ultimately some people have made the argument as to whether or not NATO even should exist in the the world that we live in today now this is obviously an argument for a different podcast so we'll talk about that in a separate uh, on a different day but ultimately this is the argument that Russia are proposing this being that NATO's eastward expansion into former soviet states is um something that they um they see as uh, at least um, implied act of aggression or an implied act of hostility co-members and they specifically are opposed to the possibility, to any possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. Now there have been um, conversations in, in recent years relating to um, closer relationship between Ukraine and NATO, and so therefore the idea of Ukraine joining NATO isn't exactly one that is, um, you know, impossible to visualize. I can You can imagine that this might be something that takes place in the future. And President Putin specifically stressed that Russia, quote, does not war and would rely on negotiations to resolve the crisis. So we can see here that we have a a conflict that is arising and we see here that um, ultimately we could see the potential of uh, an invasion um, by Russia into Ukraine. Now, in terms of the history of uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, we have clearly a link in history. They're very, very clearly linked. Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire and has been part of the uh, was part of the Soviet Union as well for a very, very long period of time. We only start to see the uh, growing amount of independence, um, at least growing independence movements that were ultimately successful uh, in January 1990. So, for example, on the 21st of January 1990, over 300,000 Ukrainians organized a human chain as a sign of independence. And this was a chain that stretched uh, between Kiev and and Lviv. Uh, And this represented, or at least was a representation and a... um, solidarity if you will with the 1919 unification of the ukrainian people's uh, republic movement and so this was the first instance of organized um, political movement that showed the the growing uh, amount of um, desire for ukraine to separate from the soviet union which was at this time um, in its uh, final hours and it was ultimately going to collapse and eventually form its own independent state and on the 16th of July, 1990, so a little bit later on, a few months later, a new, the new parliament adopted the Declaration of State Sovereignty of Ukraine. Now, this ultimately was the formal declaration of the sovereignty, the state sovereignty of the newly established Ukraine. And it de- declared a number of principles, principles of self-determination, which uh, signifies the right for a state to govern itself. That's what self-determination ultimately means, independence, and then also the priority of Ukrainian law over Soviet law. And ultimately, Soviet law was not going to be something that was um, particularly important because uh, not long after uh, this, uh, in July 1990, we see the uh, f- the formal collapse, uh, the growing collapse of the Soviet Union as each of the satellite states uh, in in the Eastern Bloc begin to um, uh, declare their own independence. Now, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia during and after this period was not particularly um, pleasant. And I'm going to skip over uh, a lot of the history because, of course, this isn't a history um, channel. This is actually a, 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 a legal channel, a law channel. So we have to really talk about the law and the legal aspects of it rather than talking about the history. And we start to see in February 2014 um, a growing amount of um, civil unrest that ultimately led to the Russian intervention and the annexation of Crimea. So Russian troops uh, used uh, a naval base at Sevastopol uh, as a cover to um, ultimately go in and uh, disarm Ukrainian forces and take control over uh, Crimea. Now this was Undoubtedly, an illegal encroachment, an illegal um, act uh, against uh, the state sovereignty of Ukraine, and this was something that was met with um, harsh sanctions by the international community, which um, you know actually had quite a detrimental effect on on Russian, uh, on the Russian economy, and was something that ultimately uh, led to um, the growing tensions that we are starting to see and may even have a lead to the uh, the ultimate uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine that we might see in a matter of weeks or even a matter of days so it's interesting and it's important that we notify this kind of part of the history the the, the annexation of Crimea the illegal annexation of Crimea under an international law but one interesting thing that came out of the annexation of Crimea was the growing relationship between Ukraine and the European Union Now, the Russian state seems to be um, not just opposed to any kind of Ukrainian-NATO alliance, or Ukraine um, even joining NATO, but they also seem to be quite heavily against the the possibility of Ukraine joining the European Union, because this would align uh, Ukraine closer to uh, the Western powers and the Western democracies because they would be part of um, the, a union of Western democracies and, and Western powers and it was and it's generally seen that they want to um, align Ukraine more with um, their own interest with their own national interest and we see following the annexation of Crimea, very interestingly, the ratification of what we call the Ukraine-European Union Association Agreement. Now, what this did, um, ultimately, uh, is did what it says on the tin. It led to an association between Ukraine, uh, a deeper association between Ukraine and the uh, European Union. And former Ukrainian President um, Petro uh, Poroshenko argued that this the The ratification of this agreement, the ratification of the European Union Association Agreement, to, was Ukraine's um, quote first uh, but most decisive step towards EU membership. Now, just like with NATO, um, the the idea of Ukrainian membership. Uh, membership to the European Union is not one that is impossible to to, to imagine. Uh, we've seen the European Union expand eastwards before with the um, in- introduction uh, and the addition of a number of um, former Soviet states into the European Union. The same thing happened with NATO and we could probably see something very similar happening with Ukraine. So, While there is also, while there is ultimately the issue of contention between NATO and Russia and the uh, possibility of Ukraine joining NATO, EU membership is also a very um, big contention between Russia and Ukraine. And further to this, further to the Ukraine European Union Association Agreement, we see on the 1st of January 2016, Ukraine join the deep and comprehensive free trade area with the European Union. Now, this again, is another signal to show that we are seeing um, greater unification between Ukraine and the European Union and what the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement um, or, sorry, the deep, um, the joining, sorry, of the deep and comprehensive free trade area did was um, gradually the intention of this was to gradually integrate the Ukrainian economy within the European internal market, the EU internal market. Now, this isn't This isn't a formal declaration of joining the European Union in any way, now uh, it is just simply um, aligning the Ukrainian economy more with the economy of the EU single market, the internal market. So we can see here that we are seeing, uh, we at least saw in in previous years, uh, the history of Ukraine developing and um, the membership and closer alliance with uh, NATO and the European Union taking place. And this was something that made Russia very, very uneasy. And as such, we have seen this sphere of influence, the idea of um, Russia being able to exert uh, more and more influence over the um, Ukrainian economy and also the Ukrainian political system. Uh, and, And this is really one of the questions that we're going to ask like ultimately even if we don't see a full legal uh sorry a full illegal um, invasion of uh, ukraine by russia what impact does the idea of um, exerting a sphere of influence have over the ukrainian state what does that actually do to ukrainian sovereignty and that's an issue that we're going to talk about so let's talk about what we know right away Since 1991, Ukraine has been sovereign and independent state. It has been a regardless of what Putin says. Putin is is absolutely wrong in this regard. Um, Ukraine is definitely a sovereign state, it's definitely an independent state, it's a member of the United Nations, it could be a member of NATO, and it could end up being a member of the European Union. And as such, Kiev is entitled to decide its own fate, its own future. And this extends to international law and international treaties that Ukraine engages in, and it also includes membership to international institutions like the European Union, like NATO. So any kind of decision um, about membership to the European Union or membership of NATO is a decision that has to be made and ought to be made by Ukraine. might be made by the authorities, the political establishment in, in Ukraine, and have no influence um, on by Russia. Now... Russia's posturing on this issue appears to be antithetical to Ukraine's position as a sovereign independent union. Now, Putin and other members of the um, uh, of the Russian state um, have expressed in the past uh, the idea that Ukraine is somehow not a member state in its own right, and is not a, a sovereign state, and is just simply... Um, uh, needs to be re-established as part of the Russian empire or at least part of the Russian federation as it exists today and of course this is a stupid opinion um, and it is something that um, ultimately challenges international law in this regard so Russia's posturing on this issue and this is ultimately what Russia is doing they're posturing by uh, by having um, 120,000 troops on, on the border and seeing ultimately what um, the, the rest of the international this posturing is antithetical to ukraine's position as a sovereign independent union and is in 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 line with uh really pushing the edge pushing against um, the idea of state sovereignty and international law so when it comes to international law and state sovereignty it is not there's not really much law to discuss in this regard when it comes to the international law of state sovereignty uh, as it relates to this Ukraine uh, Russia crisis Russia uh, at least in some circles within the Russian Federation within the Russian state including Putin uh, by the way um, they believe that uh, Ukraine is a uh, is not an independent state this is just simply not true on any account of any understanding of international law and Hasn't been true ever since the um, independence of um, the Ukraine in the 1990s and 1991 specifically. So that means that any encroachment by military means um, by the Russian Federation will be uh, an act of aggression uh, or will be a, a, a use of force. Now, the international law on the use of force can be boiled down into a series of fundamental principles. And we begin by talking about the United Nations Charter, the UN Charter, specifically Article 4, uh, sorry, Article Two Four of the UN Charter. And it states that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force, the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. So ultimately, what the United Nations Charter does when it comes to the, 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 the international law on the use of force is effectively ban or outlaw the use of force in any regard except for two major exceptions. There are two major exceptions to the Article 2.4 declaration, and these are um, the use of force may be legal under international law um, by way of authorization from the UN Security Council, that's uh, signified in Article 42, Something that is never going to happen by the way obviously it's never going to happen that the u n Security Council vote uh, a resolution to allow um the Russian Federation to invade ukraine that's obviously not going to happen uh, more importantly though article fifty one is the self defense argument the idea that you can um, that use of force may be legal in cases of self defense now it has to be clear and immediate threats and it has to be um Uh, Yeah, effectively a clear and immediate threat to um, the the, the, the Russian Federation. And we'll talk about that in a second, because in addition to the United Nations law on um, the use of force, we also have the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. And this memorandum was um, signed by Russia, by the Russian Federation, and Moscow pledged to quote refrain from the threat or use of force against Ukraine in response um, and in exchange for the surrender of a nuclear stockpile in Ukraine so ukraine uh, this was a a stockpile that was left over from um, the soviet union during the cold war and ukraine um, decided to they surrendered this nuclear stockpile in response to uh, or at least in exchange for a an international memorandum a pledge that was signed by moscow to refrain from the use or the threat of force now notice that This is this is actually a quote from the uh, memorandum itself saying uh, Moscow pledged, quote, refrain from the threat or use of force. Now, this uh, mirrors very, very nicely the UN Charter, which states uh, I'll just read the little bit that it it mirrors um, specifically um, international relations from the use, sorry, from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity uh, or political independence of any state. So. They're using the language of the UN Charter in relation to um, specifically making a pledge by memorandum um, in Ukraine. So they have made this very uh, this pledge. Now, ultimately, this pledge um, would uh, seem to not uh, matter in any regard. But it just goes to show that not only do we have the general international law uh, on the use of force that ought to in law protect ukraine from any kind of incursion but we also have a um, signed and sealed document by moscow themselves in 1994 making the exact same pledge so let me just go back to talking about the um, exceptions to article 24 of the uh, un charter like i said we have the article 42 exception which is the un security council resolution obviously that's never going to happen what about this self-defence obligation, the the exception that we have in Article 51? Now, arguably, what constitutes self-defence is one that is quite a murky subject because while it is clear and it has been made clear in the law that there has to be a clear and immediate threat, in rec- in in the past, sorry, we have seen um, a lot of uh, wiggle room being given to. Um, the whether or not the use of force is authorised or at least legal in regard to self-defence. Now obviously the, the most prime example of this is the argument that was put forward by um, the UK and the United States when it came to um, the attack and the evasion of Iraq in the early 2000s. They argued that Saddam had uh, quote-unquote weapons of mass destruction Ultimately, they were using um, poor um, data. They were they they had um, bypassed um, the um, U.S. intelligence agencies and just took raw data um, to. Um, Uh, rumsfeld and um, bush themselves and they were making the justification for war but the argument for self-defense was on faulty lines could this be something that happens in this situation and we've already had um indication that uh, there is a possibility of russia trying to set up false flag attacks now a false flag attack effectively refers to um an attack um Uh, at least an incident that takes place but that is caused by it would be caused by russia themselves but they blame that on ukraine and they argue that this is an act of aggression against ukraine which could then give them the legal justification to utilize this article 51 self-defense argument and then go and attack the state itself so this is the problem with the self-defense article within the united nations now ultimately this could be a a a separate um, episode we could talk about um, self-defense in the international law On the use of force but this could be what happens we could see the justification for the use of force by way of a some kind of false flag attack that could then open the doors to this article 51 self-defense argument now this isn't the first time that we've seen um russian incursion the russian federation incur uh, invading if you will or expanding its territory into post-Soviet territories and we have a couple of examples of this we've already talked about the annexation of Crimea in 2014 again an illegal annexation into Crimea in 2014 and it shows that they've placed an emphasis on the domestic interests of the state rather than the sovereign rights of the owners uh sorry of the sovereign rights of the 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 uh, neighbors their neighbors the member states in for example Ukraine another example of this is the invasion of Georgia from in 2008 so we have two clear examples in at least the last 15 years that we have seen um, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, and we have seen the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And now we have got this expanded um, uh, bearing upon uh, the, the the Ukrainian border uh, in 2022. Now, it should be noted that this isn't something that has happened, uh, that the um, the... Uh, pushing on the Ukrainian border isn't something that hasn't been going on since two thousand and fourteen. There have been the the amount of um, breaches of the uh, Russia-Ukrainian ceasefire uh, has been increasing, increasing over over the years. But this is obviously the most egregious example of um, uh, the the Russian Federation bearing upon uh, the, the the state of Ukraine. Now. I want to, before we talk about the issue of the spheres of influence, I want to talk about the concept of um, the Russian invasion being a violation of not just international law, but international criminal law. Now, if, you've, if you're new to, this, uh, to the Law Academy, we've talked about international criminal law quite a lot. We've still got some lessons left to finish, but international criminal law ultimately is the um, branch of public international law that deals with quote-unquote international crimes. International crimes are crimes that are um, said to be the crimes that um, shock the very conscience of humanity. And we defined four of these crimes in international criminal law. There is the crime of genocide, we have the crimes against humanity, which is... Um, a number of different acts that can be um, that can be put into this broad umbrella that we define as crimes against humanity and it's actually uh, the the nature of these crimes being done in a widespread and systematic way that defines it as a crime against humanity the third of these is war crimes um, quite self-explanatory violations of international humanitarian law and then the fourth one which is the one that i want to focus on here is the issue of aggression the crime of aggression now this is an article. I believe, on um, Al Jazeera by uh, Professor uh, Frederick uh, Magret and Professor Kevin-Jean uh, uh, Heller, talking about the um, Russia-Ukrainian crisis and the extent to which international crimes play a role. Because these two argue that there has been a bit too much of a focus on geopolitics and spheres of influence, and this could actually distract us from um, what is instead a major violation of international law, and I would go on to say a major violation of international criminal law. Now they made the claim that the, um, the issues that are, uh, uh, that are at hand for the West uh, and Western policy seems to be Focusing on the power structure of Europe and also very specifically European energy supplies. So we know that um, Russia supplies a lot of um, energy, uh, a lot of their energy obligations to Europe and um, any kind of um, conflict with um, the rest of Europe and the Russian Federation could actually um cause problems when it comes to the um the, the european energy supplies that take place and so this seems to be the focus on of western states we have the language um, and uh, well a quote here specifically from the article says that on both sides the language is unmistakably that of political calculation and opportunity we're talking about this from a political perspective and we should be really talking about it from a legal perspective as well that's what the point of this episode's about talking about the legal implications of uh, this crisis and also the international criminal uh, uh, issues that relate to it and the crime of aggression something we have a lesson on already that i'll link in the description um uh, was defined um, by the un general assembly in 1974 um, in resolution 3314 uh, article 3 of resolution 3314 and it's defined as the invasion or attack by the armed forces of a state of the territory of another state or any military occupation, however temporary, resulting from such invasion or attack or any annexation uh, by the use of force of the territory of another state or part thereof. Now, um, if you want to um, go back and listen to that definition again or or find it on uh, the United Nations website, you can see that we can definitely um, place an emphasis on the concept uh, of the crime of aggression, the act of aggression, as defined in the UN General Assembly here, and also defined in the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, by the way, um, we can see that what we can do is make a direct one-to-one comparison between this definition and any potential attack that would take place uh, in Russia and Ukraine. So the Rome Statute adopted the um, crime of aggression in 2018. There is yet to be a single trial or anybody going um, to jail or being convicted of the crime of aggression by the International Criminal Court. But the problem with the International Criminal Court is that Russia is not a member of the International Criminal Court. And so, because of the quite limited jurisdiction aspect of the crime of aggression, it means that if... Russia were to invade Ukraine and we, it was to be a clear violation of um, the uh, United Nations Charter and be completely in line with Resolution 3314 and be absolutely a, an act of aggression, the, you, the, uh, the International Criminal Court would have no jurisdiction to prosecute any member, uh, any Russian Federation heads of state or mem- uh, you know uh, heads of authority for said crimes the only thing we would be able to do is see the prosecution of potential war crimes committed in Ukraine. Because if you remember or if you think back to if you've um, thought about or studied international criminal law the way the jurisdiction process works is if there is a, a member who is a part of the Rome Statute, who is part of the International Criminal Court, and a war crime or, or, or genocide or a crime against humanity is committed in that territory then it doesn't matter who committed the territory uh, so who committed the act um, that act would be under the jurisdiction of the ICC so even though russia isn't a member of the ICC if a russian soldier or a russian commander were to commit a war crime in ukraine they would be under the jurisdiction of the international criminal court and this is obviously because kiev have already accepted the jurisdiction of the court so We need to not just think about this issue from the geopolitical standpoint um, that the West seems to have been doing about policy um, for the the last month. The last month has been about um, the power structure in Europe, the the extent to which um, intervention by european states by western states and also by the united states is is something that could be um, possible and then also talking about the global energy supply um, that comes from europe uh, from from russia sorry we also have to talk about it from in regard to the issue of state sovereignty, the issue of the illegal use of force, uh, contrary to the United Nations Charter, and also the invasion um, and the potential that this uh, breaches the international criminal aspect relating to the crime of aggression. Now, before I finish, I want to talk about the issue of spheres of influence, the spheres of influence issue, because even if Russia the Russian Federation decides not to um, invade Ukraine uh, and decides not to um, go ahead with a full scale military invasion, a military incursion, we still have the issue of Russia utilising their sphere of influence, their expansion of a sphere of influence into Ukraine. Because aside from a direct invasion from Russia, Ukraine is still faced with this big issue. Because if we've already seen that there is the establishment of a russian sphere of influence russia influences quite a quite heavily a lot of aspects of ukrainian society ukrainian policy ukrainian um, ultimately ukrainian elections ukrainian politics and while it's not necessarily illegal in that sense to be encroaching on these spheres of it in a indirect sphere of influence kind of way it raises a number of difficult questions relating to the nature and extent of full autonomy and self-determination of the uh, of the ukrainian state and it's an issue that is quite um, under represented in international law i think that if we're going to talk about international law we should also talk about um, not just the direct use of force that is um, possible by the russian federation in the invasion of ukraine but also the establishment of a sphere of influence which could also um, have a negative impact uh, impact on the state sovereignty of ukraine now i hope you've enjoyed um listening to this uh, in any in any kind of way it's important to follow the news on this issue uh, in russia and ukraine and uh, as it relates to international law uh, we will be making these um, episodes more and more i think if there are any suggestions for um, topics to talk about um, whether they be in, in international law any kind of international law um, questions specific issues or it be domestic issues political issues we can talk about as well um do comment down below, and I I hope to um, be covering all of these issues, and I hope you enjoyed listening to me talking about law, not in a kind of formal, uh, hopefully not in a formal um, lesson environment, I hope you learned something and it didn't feel like a lecture, Uh, so yes, thank you very much.